Some of you might remember, it was a really, really long time ago, longer than I realised, we were back in the final lockdown. I started a series slowly walking through the stories that Jesus has told in Mark's Gospel. And we had a couple of shortish verses that had getting as far as chapter 3, and then we took a break for Lent, then we took a break for Easter, and then we never get back to it until now. And so for the next little while, over on Sundays I'm with you, we're going to begin that stroll again with Jesus through Mark, beginning at chapter 4. And just to kind of remind you sort of why Mark's so important, it's reckoned to be the earliest surviving account of the life of Jesus. And church tradition has suggested it was based on the account of Peter shortly before he was executed under Nero, although we can't be certain of that. But it also forms the basis of two other Gospels, Matthew and Luke. It's fairly clear that they use Mark as one of their major sources, often using the exact same words as Mark used. And although it's the shortest of the Gospels, it is a very important document. But because it's been quite a while, a quick recap on the story so far. Mark's Gospel begins with the arrival of John the Baptist. There's no backstory. John simply appears in the wilderness, and that's quite common for Mark. You know, you don't really get much in the back backstory. It just things just happen. He John summons people to repentance. He urges them to be baptized. It's a sign of repentance, and people come from all over the place to be baptized by him. But John also announces that someone else is coming after him. Someone who is way more important. And then Jesus enters the scene. He comes to be baptized, and he hears the voice from heaven saying, You're my son, whom I love, I'm pleased with you. But Jesus then goes into the wilderness where he's tested, and he thinks out his next move. And then he comes back to Galilee. He tells people that God's kingdom has come there. Repent and believe the good news. And the next few chapters are action packed. Jesus calls disciples. He performs lots of miracles. He draws large crowds. But at the same time, he's attracting opposition. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He seems to have quite a different take on the laws that govern their life, often around what they should or should not be doing on the Sabbath. Catching mics, and by the end of chapter 3, he's being slandered as being in league with the devil. His own family, perhaps with the best of intentions, are trying to get him to calm down a bit. And some leaders are even trying to find a way to get rid of Jesus. So we've got this mix of spectacular healings, enthusiastic crowds, a much smaller committed group of followers, but also a lot of opposition, some of it quite influential. And that is where we pick up the story. Time will always come to bring us the reading now. Yes, speak the Lord, and build your church. Meet with each one of us and help us to find our purpose in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, How to Hear God, which some of you will know formed the basis for our Lent course earlier this year, Pete Gregg tells a story about a train journey into London. He had decided to listen to a podcast on his phone. And so he popped his wireless earbuds into his ears and settled down for the journey. And he was listening to a programme in which a neuroscientist called Dr. Catherine Leaf was interviewing a woman who, through suffering sort of severe trauma, had entered an early menopause. 
This woman had learned to moderate her symptoms by carefully monitoring her stress levels, which amongst other things involved testing the pH level of her urine. On the train, there was a woman who seemed to be trying to attract Pete's attention, but he thought she wanted to chat and he really just wanted to listen to his podcast. So he pointed the buds in his ears and gave up, you know, what can kind I of do, sort of thing, indicating he couldn't hear it. And then between the clatter of the train tracks and the heavy rain beating against the window, he was finding it harder to hear his program. So he turned the volume up on his phone. He got it up to the point where the volume was right up on his phone. And it was only as the train was pulling into London that he discovered that throughout his whole journey, his earbuds had not been connected to his phone. For the whole journey, he had been broadcasting to the entire carriage reflections on moods, memory loss, menopause, and the art of suffering pain. And the person least able to hear what he was listening to was him. Everyone else, with the exception of the woman who had been trying to get his attention, was being very English and choosing not to make a fuss. And Pete wonders, are we like that with God sometimes? We are hardwired to communicate with God, not just to speak to God and pray to God, but to hear God speaking to us. And I suggest we almost certainly hear God already far more than we realise. But partly because God, for the most part, doesn't speak audibly like I'm doing to you now, it's less obvious. We can misunderstand. We can misinterpret. We can miss altogether what God is saying and doing. We can dismiss it as our imagination, wishful thinking, coincidence, whatever. But like the earbuds on Pete Gregg's phone, we can become disconnected. We can become distracted. We can become distanced. And we can fail to hear what God is trying to say to us at that moment. And sometimes the reason we fail to hear is because we think we know what the other is going to say. Ever had that? I know what they're going to say, so I don't really need to listen to this. They're saying something entirely different. Earlier this week, in fact, twice this week, I have done surveys in which I am somewhere in the middle, they've dipped in a survey that will say something along the lines of, uh, so that we know you are reading this, can you just take the top box or the third box or whatever? Because they know people will just pick through surveys and they know what it's going to say. And if we've been around church for a number of years, Jesus' story of the sower might be one of those passages that we're so familiar with that we might think, not one more than I hear from it. Well, Mark 4 sees a change is seen. As opposition grows, Jesus' teaching is becoming more based outdoors, it's done on the road, there's much less stuff done in the synagogue. And he also switches to parables. And parables, the word parable itself literally means to just throw a couple of things together. To bring together two ideas which might not necessarily seem connected immediately, but make comparisons between them. And Jesus takes some very ordinary sayings, stuff that people would have been familiar with, and uses it 
the tale of some profound truths. He moves from the everyday to the mysterious or the eternal. Sometimes parables are called earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. But that doesn't mean that they're solely connected with the next life. Jesus' teaching is far more earthy than that, with implications for here and now. And parables tell us that pretty much anything can become the means by which God speaks to us, if we're open to hear it. The Scottish Jesuit priest and writer Gerald W. Hughes has a book called God in All Things. It makes that point, that God can use anything to speak to us. I sometimes refer to singing as the accidental preacher, because every now and then there will be a moment when she does something and it sparks reflection in me. It's like God uses that And Jesus does this in a variety of ways, but most famously, Jesus does it with stories. Why does Jesus use stories so much? Well, I suppose stories have the power to attract our attention and stick in our brain. It's probable that if you don't remember a single word I say today, I can't believe that. But, but if, even if you don't remember anything else I say, you will probably remember the story of Pete Gray, the earbuds and the pea sample podcast. And you will remember that story way longer than you remember why I told you the story in the first place. But stories are also a good way to bypass our logical thought processes. There's a really famous scene in the Old Testament where a prophet called Nathan, uses a story about a rich man with lots of sheep and a man with a single lamb to make a point to King David about his adultery with Bathsheba. The chances are, if Nathan had confronted David directly and had said, David, what do you think you're doing? Messing around with another man's wife, getting her pregnant and then having him killed. That David's defences would have been up straight away. Truthfully, Nathan would have been quite lucky to escape with his life if he had talked to David like that. But by using a story, Nathan drew him in. He got his attention. He called him off his guard. And he got him to confront the part of himself that he was trying to avoid. But a story also makes us think for ourselves. So we have to ask, what does it mean? What's the point? Because we can sometimes want people to tell us the right answer. But when it comes to his teaching, Jesus refuses to spoon-feed us. Notice if you read through the Gospels, look how often that Jesus has asked a question that he never answers it. It's pretty much every time. Most of the time when Jesus has asked a question, he responds, with a question. God has given us a brain and he wants us to use it. And he knows that truth is more likely to stick with us if we discover it for ourselves because then we'll truly own it rather than if somebody just tempt you it. But of course, 
as well as the positive aspects of stories, there's the negative ones. Stories can just be ignored. We can listen to it, we can entertain, be entertained by the story, and then never think of it again. And that's the risk Jesus takes. But stories invite reflection rather than definition. And maybe at different times, and in different circumstances, the message a story might leave us with is quite different. And that's okay. Jesus makes the point, this point, in the brief interlude between the parable and the explanation Jesus offered. You know, some could listen and understand all the meaning of the individual words. Have you ever had that? You've understood every single word in the sentence, but when you put them together in that way, it doesn't make much sense to you. I've had that plenty of time. Normally when I'm listening to something on Radio 4. Well, sometimes it's like that with people. Yeah, with the stories. Jesus knew that people could have understood every single word that he said, and yet it just bounced off them and made no sense. And they would be like those who hear but never perceive or understand. But there would be others who would think deeper, and they would uncover what Jesus was trying to teach them. And I'll come back to that a bit more next week. But it's quite possible that day that Jesus and the crowd around them could see a sower, as Jesus was teaching. Perhaps there was one or more on the hillsides, sloping down towards the lake. Galilee was an agricultural subsistence economy. Maybe there were more than a few sowers in the crowd that day as they gathered around this boat. Now, despite the picture that I've showed you sort of on the screen for most of the service, you shouldn't think of this as a farmer out in a big field. But in most part, they were small plots of land that was handed down through many generations. And mere survival was getting harder and harder and harder. Roman taxation, coupled with the taxes of the temple authorities, was forcing people to sell their land and more and more land was getting concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer wealthy landowners. Most of them were Romans, or they were people sympathetic to the Romans. And small native farmers were being driven to the edges, both literally and metaphorically. They were being forced to sow wherever they could, and hope that somewhere along the way they might find that could support a crop in amongst all the weeds and the stones. So sowers in Jesus' audience would have identified with the one in the story. Their plots included difficult terrain. Some of them had pathways where a seed fell and simply became bird food. They had rocky patches where seed would germinate but not really develop and the hot sun would wither it. They had weedy, thorny ground. You know, they chopped off the top of the weed or they burnt off the top of the weed, but the root was still underneath. And it would stifle the growth of, the, of the, what they were trying to grow. Real and fictional sowers both needed to find good soil to provide food for this year and for planting for next year. Finding good ground was life and death. 
And Jesus was speaking to a people in trouble. They were under occupation. Bit by bit, the land was slipping from their hands into the hands of those who had no time for God. And they wanted to know what God thought about that. Why are God's people struggling? Why are the bad guys thriving? Does God not care about this? And actually, if we read the story of the home, Jesus tells them, actually, no, things are not that clear cut. They're not that black and white. The story reflects Israel at the time of Jesus. They were dominated by the Romans. They were driven to the edges of the land God had given them. But even those circumstances weren't cutting them off from the possibility of blessing because even on the edges of the land, against all odds, harvests came. God had not forgotten. But it's a story which also would have been reflected in the response to Jesus' teaching. Jesus was teaching a large crowd by the lake. Jesus was proving popular. And Jesus was casting out his teaching widely. He had no interest in, how, in who it was landing on. He was just throwing it out there without control over the response. Anybody standing by could listen to Jesus. Or anybody standing by could ignore him. How would they respond? And there were some who would stand alone. And there were others who would get on board with him. Some of them would hear him and then forget him. Some of them would receive it happily enough, but give up quite easily. It never really gets below the surface. Some would welcome it, but there would be lots of other voices clamoring for their attention, and in time, it would get crowded out. But there would be some who would open themselves to receive what Jesus wanted to say and break to live. And in time, it would transform their lives. In a sense, the sower is quite prodigal, wasteful. Seed is important, so why throw it around? But as the sower of the word, Jesus is prodigal. He speaks to all sorts of people, and he speaks to everybody in the hope that some of it will land and some of it will take root. And it will feel like an awful lot of effort is simply wasted, much as a sower is casting seed, hoping to find a good patch of ground and finds a lot of it not landing where he wants it. In a sense, Jesus is explaining to the disciples why he is getting the response he is. Because the disciples are coming to realize Jesus is someone way more important than just a good teacher. And they're wondering, how come everybody else can't see this? What they were the those who really should have been able to see what Jesus was all about, and they're proving the most resistant. Why are some hostile? Why are some indifferent? Why are some just out for themselves and whatever Jesus can do for them without any thought about how it might impact their them or call them to do anything with it? And Jesus is telling them that he will just keep sowing and he'll leave the outcome to God. He says it's always been that way. Apparent waste and failure have always been part of the way God has worked in the world. So sure, some of it will bounce off. There will be some who will oppose Jesus and not want to see it. There will be others who won't be able to see God at work in Jesus because 
he isn't what they expect. Jesus is sure some will give up, either straight away or over time. But equally, he is sure that some of it will take root and will transform lives. And they may not see it immediately, because harvests don't just spring up. They may never see it, but trust God with it, and it will happen. And perhaps that's an encouragement to us to keep going, to model our efforts of a prodigal God, because sometimes our best efforts feel like a waste of time. Ways that apparently just haven't always been part of the way God's worked in the world. God gives us free will and won't force us to respond. And we can't control the response of anyone else to anything we're trying to offer them. It depends on the response of others. And that is not within our control. So there will be those for whom God's love simply will not get through. It may be lack of interest, they may consider it irrelevant, they may believe, I can get along without that. I don't need that. And then there will be those who seem to start well, but it fails to make any lasting difference to their lives. There will be those for whom the faith never really gets beneath the surface. There will be those for whom the clamour of too many voices will drown out their attention. But in time, there will be those for whom it makes a great difference and it truly transforms. But what about us? How do we hear? When God tries to connect with us, when he sows seed into our lives, what soil does he find? In different ways, at different times, I think all of each of us can be like our own small plot of land on which the sower cast the seed. And sometimes it bounces off. Sometimes prejudice, familiarity, that sense of, oh, Sandra is off on this again. I know what he's going to say. And sometimes it will seem to make sense. But we're not really ready for it yet. Because there is one thing to say yeah, I could really do with changing that part of my life. And another to actually be prepared to let it happen. When it grows difficult, we can lose heart. Or the thorny ground might be particularly tricky soil to break down. And this is a particular problem for our age. Because in, tr in truth, it's always us. There has always been distraction. But it is more so today we live in an age where everything is designed for distraction and addiction. Many of us have an, have an advice. 
It's mere six inches by three inches. And it sucks away any space that you have for attention. It's called a smartphone. The data is slightly out of date, but I don't suspect this is actually improved. Does anyone want to guess how many times the average smartphone user touches their phone on an average day? Anyone want to have a guess? You've, you've got a really low view of human nature by any. You're not, you're not as far on as you might. The answer is 2,617. I've grown very, very conscious. And trust me, when I'm saying this, it is very much physician who myself. I'm very much aware of this in my own life. I have an app called digital well-being, which tells me how much time I spend looking at my, the screen of my phone. And trust me, okay, there are times it's all very legitimate. You know, I'm traveling somewhere, I'm using maps or whatever, so yeah, yeah you can, you know, that's fine. But I'm conscious of how easily give me a spare moment my hand is drawn to the phone. I don't think I'm the only one. What we give attention to shapes the person we become. And most of us live in what is psychologists call a state of constant partial attention. We live with a lot of distraction. And the word comes to us. It doesn't break through. It doesn't find good soil. So we can't control how others might respond, but we do have some say in what we do and what kind of ground we cultivate. So do we make time for God? Do we create space into which God can speak? Or are more precisely, I mean, do we create circumstances in which God can be heard? For God's a prodigal God reaching out to us all the time. Whether or not it gets through. The question is, do we have ears to hear? Will we truly listen? I can remember as a kid, my mum would give me instructions, and then said, do you hear me? <laughs> and you might have had something similar like that. And the proof of whether I really truly heard what my mum had said wasn't on whether I, I said, yes, mum. It was whether I actually did it. And so it is with Jesus. If we do hear, do we listen? Do we, and will we do it? Will we make room for the Spirit? Because if we will, He is able to do far more with us than we can ask or imagine. I just, just, just popped into my head uh, 
living at a cost of partial destruction. I saw this sent me a picture the other day, and I, I saw a picture the, the other day, which I have sent to others, of this sort of like screen full of chips and mashed potato crisps and all sorts of things that you could do with a spud. And it said, if you could do this with a simple potato, think what God can do with you. It's sometimes said that the yields Jesus speaks of in this parable are large, improbable. And maybe that was the point. Because when we offer ourselves to Jesus, so much more is possible than we realize. Oh, often it will feel like we're wasting time and effort, like there's no impact. But God's work has always been like that. And as we come to this table, we see that's how it worked with Jesus. Because Jesus once described himself as a seed. He used an image of himself as a seed that falls into the ground and dies. And says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And that's how it was with Jesus. As he died, it felt like he was one more of God's wasted seeds. He died alone. Some had simply rejected him. Some had tried to follow and given up. Some had been distracted and scarpered. And Jesus was all alone. And he looked like a failed seed. But he cast that seed and trusted God with it. And here today, we're remembering his death. We're seeking to follow him. And show that that shows he has produced a harvest, one that has springs up all over the world and in every generation. It's the result of a God who never gives up, who keeps casting the seed, looking for the harvest. A prodigal God who calls us to be like him. Grace.